0: Welcome to 20 Minute Health Talk. I'm your host, Rob Hoyle. Millions of Americans live 30 miles or more from the nearest hospital. Not just an inconvenience, this access issue known as care deserts affects a shocking 80% of counties in the United States and can exist both in rural and urban settings. A scarcity of medical resources, however, does not have to doom the entire health of communities. Our guests today bring a unique perspective to this issue. We have Dr. Onisa Steffes, he's the Chief Pharmacy Officer for Northwell Health. Welcome. Great, thank you. Thank you very much for having me here today. And we have Alex Hellinger. He is the Senior Vice President and Regional Executive Director for Brooklyn and formerly the Executive Director of Lenox Health Greenwich Village. Alex, welcome. Thanks, Rob. So Dr. Steffes, we'll start with you. This isn't a term many of us are very familiar with, but these stats tell us they're very common.
1: Why are care deserts so common? You know, the first thing to note is that there are different types of care deserts, right? There's healthcare deserts, there's maternal deserts, there's also pharmacy deserts and you know, at the end of the day as you look to define what a, what a medical desert is, it really is uh, the point that there's just not enough healthcare to support that specific uh, community. And when you take a look back in time and kind of see why did these things evolve, how did they come to be today? A lot of it really surrounded uh, hospital closures. So when you take a look at a medical ecosystem, in that middle, that anchor is really that hospital, and then around that hospital, you have those ambulatory practices, primary providers, all pharmacies, all these different other uh, ambulatory services. Uh, you know, kind of to support that that hospital and, and that health system. So once you started to see Unfortunately, some of the closures of the hospitals, you also started to see some of those other providers and folks kind of exit the market. Also, there's a
0: uh, a big uh, declining number in primary care physicians. Why is that and what is being done to kind of offset that?
1: Um, sure. I mean, so uh, to your point, there is a shortage of physicians and providers today. And if you take a look and you start to trend that over the future over half of the physician shortage is really going to be surrounding primary care. And primary care really is absolutely essential to your health care because a lot of times they're the ones that are going to be supporting the chronic conditions and and other things within uh, within the community. And there really needs to be more of an effort or an incentive to have some of the future doctors of tomorrow really go into that primary care and and, uh, provide that very, very important um, medical service.
2: Yeah, and, and look, Onesis touched on the main point, right, is the hospital closures. And uh, since 1975, over a 1,000 hospitals have closed. Um, but then you have to ask yourself, well, why did they close? right? What are some of the issues? What are some of the issues with urban uh, versus rural? It it's basically comes down to finances, right? So if you're in a rural area, you just don't have that dense population, so the hospitals are going to be spread out. If you're in, uh, in a rural area, if you're in an urban area, it all comes back to finances, and it comes back to what is the reimbursement, right? Basic economics. Your revenue has to be more than your costs. And if you look at Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement, they don't actually hit the cost. So Medi- Medicaid is about 62% of what the costs are. Uh, Medicare is somewhere around 87%. So how do you run a business if 90% of your population are bringing these types of insurances? And that, that, that is a real issue uh, when, you, when you look at the urban settings.
0: Yeah. And and we're also talking about pharmacies and that's a major problem. People have not have being able to have access to the medications that they need.
1: Yes, absolutely. So you can go to your provider, right? They can diagnose you and they can recommend the best drug in the world. But at the end of the day, if you don't have the access to that medication, what is the value, you know, uh, of that visit? You know, the doctor defines that you have diabetes. If you don't get that insulin, you're guaranteed to go to the hospital and have poor outcomes. So the ho- the pharmacy becomes very, very important within that medical ecosystem to ensure that the patients can get the necessary medications that they need. Yeah,
2: and and there is one other thing I'd like to mention on, on hospital closures, right? It, it is about volume, it is about finances. So we are much better at keeping people out of the hospitals now than we were many years ago. Our diagnostics are better. Um, everybody that used to come to a hospital with chest pain would be admitted. We can rule that out now and they don't have to go to the hospital. We have a huge ambulatory structure, right? For the specific purpose of keeping people out of the hospital and keeping them them healthy, so it does contribute to less volume, less financials, uh, and and hospitals disappearing in in some degree. Yeah, and when you
0: talk about uh, rural areas, that makes sense, right? Like a lot of places that things are stretched out and far apart. But what about urban areas?
2: Yeah, and I and I I think Rob, when uh, you know when we talk about ur- urban healthcare deserts, right? Um, St. Vincent's is a perfect example. So. St. Vincent's was a 161-year-old hospital. Um, it was a tertiary hospital. It was literally the only hospital in downtown Manhattan on the west side. Um, and they had financial difficulties and and uh, eventually closed in 2010. So when, when Northwell uh, acquired the building that was across the street, the old O'Toole building, um, we really looked at how do we replace a hospital without putting a hospital in that place, right? Because by the time we got there in 2013, that was an absolute healthcare desert, right? There was a void in healthcare, and and exactly what you referenced, uh, Onesis, is when a hospital leaves, everything around it leave all the adjacent health healthcare facilities, practitioners. Uh, they generally congregate around a hospital, right? And if you if you look at, um, some doctors get a lot of their referrals from the emergency department itself. Uh, they take call, they do surgeries in the hospital, they go see their hosp- uh, their patients when they're when they're in the hospital beds. When the hospital leaves, they're sort of patient-based leaves as well. And so they follow it. And that's what we found. Um, so we looked at how do you develop a different delivery of care model within that space without the enormous overhead costs of a, of a tertiary hospital, trauma center, et cetera. And uh, when we looked at Lenox Health Greenwich Village, first we wanted to prioritize what was the most important program to put in there. And uh, the emergency department was obviously it. And if you look around the country, there's hundreds of, Uh, freestanding EDs, as they call them, or extension EDs if they're connected to a hospital. I'm sure there's many more now. Uh, That was in 2016, that there was over 400. Um, But it's it's essentially a freestanding ED or an extension ED is an emergency department that is not located within the hospital, right? Difference from an urgent care to a freestanding ED uh, an, emergency, uh, an emergency department or a freestanding ED has uh, board-certified trained emergency medicine physicians, which we did, specialty-trained nurses uh, and other clinicians. All of the diagnostics, whether it be CAT scan, uh, x-rays, ultrasounds, uh, open 24-7, uh, never closes, and takes anybody regardless of their ability to pay, right? So, so uh, the important thing for us downtown was we were linked into Lenox Hill Hospital. So we could leverage all of the resources of Lenox Hill Hospital, uh, as well as the larger Northwell. Um, and that gave us the ability to care for anybody that walked in our doors. Furthering that, uh, you have to build a medical village. You have to build an ambulatory footprint, right? They're, they're, if you're replacing a hospital and you're doing it in an innovative way, which we were trying to do, the emergency department was the first step. Uh, and then we, constructed, designed uh, a full diagnostic imaging center, an ambulatory surgery center, physician practices that were both within the building and outside, primary care specialties, um, and we even put in two urgent care centers. So there were multiple touch points in the community allowing people to enter our system, um, and we could, again, take care of anybody that entered our doors uh, in, a very efficient, um,
1: in a very efficient way. Yeah. I, I've been there. It's actually an amazing facility. I think it's absolutely a fantastic model. People really need to start to rethink healthcare. What are the necessary uh, services you need to provide, where you need to provide them, and then how do you integrate it into a larger network to ensure that that patient is fully supported 360? Uh, Absolutely fantastic job, and and kudos to you and your team.
2: Yeah, no, thank you. The team was always amazing down there. I I couldn't have had a better team. And quite honestly, you, you can't put something like that together as well as we did without the vast resources, it took so many people from Northwell, so many people that were experts in certain areas, whether it be pharmacy, whether it be emergency medicine, whether it be radiology or laboratory, you name it, um, everybody chipped in and, and made that facility what it was. Um, and you know, you, you talk about health and wellness, there were so many screening programs going on during COVID, vaccinations, testing, um, you know that place did it all. And that, that really talks about that wraparound effect of providing healthcare for an area that was completely void of healthcare.
0: Yeah. And when we talk about healthcare deserts, uh, a lot of people who are most adversely affected are black and Hispanic communities. So is there a model going forward? Is there, you know, to help in those neighborhoods to kind of have a system like that was done down in, in
1: the village? So it's um, it's really interesting, right? So, you know, people have been aware for quite some time of the health care disparity in some of the lower socioeconomic areas, areas of color, areas uh, with Hispanic populations. But um, it really hit home for a lot of folks during COVID. When you started to see the disparity in outcomes in some of these areas compared to other ones that were only a few miles apart, it was, it was absolutely... Um, unbelievable. Uh, And from there, a a lot of organizations, including ourselves at Northwell, really started to take a look at things and say, how can we do things better? We've always done it. We've always focused on this, but how do we bring it now to the next level? Um, So a lot of what happened during COVID was we would look at different geographical areas, and there was something called a social vulnerability index. And it would take into account you know, how many healthcare assets are there? What is a typical you know uh, population from an economics perspective, minority perspective, all of those? And what are the areas um, that don't have adequate services? And from there, there was very thoughtful approach on how to provide services there uh, to try to provide some equity and equality from, from a healthcare perspective. So for example, we would look and say, okay, from a vaccine perspective, what are the vaccine rates across our catchment area that Northwell serves within our community, where are their deficits? Okay, now how are we going to get the vaccines in there? How are we going to ensure that those populations are the ones that are benefiting from those vaccines? And how are we going to educate them in order for them uh, to understand that the vaccines are important to, to their health and well-being? So there was tremendous amount of effort. What we decided to do was we put up flyers with a phone number in those general areas. Uh, we partnered with the community leaders, so we'd work with the pastors or the "quote unquote" trusted messengers or the folks within the community that people trusted, and they were the ones that were signing up the, the local communities for these vaccines. So that way, we ensured that it was those groups of people, you know, that 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 it was um, it was a designated effort for were actually receiving that, and then we wrapped around a lot of education. Uh, it's very important for the community leaders and the healthcare providers within those communities, including the local pharmacists, because most pharmacists, particularly in those independent pharmacies in those areas, live in those areas. Right? They're the most accessible healthcare providers in the country. People go in, they get, they, they ask questions, you know, they they receive uh, free healthcare and guidance. They get their medications, uh, and and we leverage our pharmacists within those communities, our pastors, our other community leaders. To get those messages out, and we armed them with the proper uh, information as it pertains to vaccines, and then we made sure that we had them. We had people signed up, and they received it. And then, more importantly, or as importantly, we came back that 21 or 28 days later to make sure that they got their second dose. Uh, and we signed them up for the the minute that they came in for the first dose, we signed them up for the second dose, and it was uh, it was a huge success. Uh, but that doesn't happen overnight. That takes years of building relationships with those communities. So when events like this happen, you can go in there and provide that level of service, uh, in a trusted and, and um, you know confident manner.
2: You know, I, I look at this almost as a, a snowball effect, right? So when you when you look at some of these communities and they're lacking in healthcare and they're lacking in funding and their infrastructure is not what it should be, it's insufficient. Um, you have sicker patients in the community. Now those sicker patients enter the hospital at a later stage of whatever their illness might be. Sicker patients require more, more infrastructure, right? More resources, and they don't have it. So now it's, it just gets worse and worse. And when you looked at what happened during COVID um, and, and being in Brooklyn, it was a sight to see. Uh, the, the emergency departments in Brooklyn were just overwhelmed with patients. And especially during this last Omicron phase uh, of, of COVID, a lot of the, the employees were sick as well. And this, this was everywhere. This was Northwell, this was you know, anywhere you can imagine. But when you go into a place where there were already recess, uh, uh, resources light, uh, and now you put on top of that, you don't have enough staff. And now you put on top of that, really sick patients are coming into the emergency department and overcrowding the emergency department. They were getting stuck uh, and they were having real problems. So I, I, was, I was very proud of what Northwell did as we went into some of these areas we load balanced, so we were looking at the emergency departments where there were critical patients that couldn't get to a critical care unit, couldn't get to a bed, and we were transferring them to our critical care units. And we were, you know, we were stretched as well. Uh, we were also providing nurses, and uh, you know, we were all feeling the crunch where um, staffing was just a big problem because so many people had come down with Omicron, uh, but we still dug deep we we got nurses that we could and we sent them out to various hospitals. So I, I was very proud of what we were trying to do during this time um, for hospitals that really needed the help and didn't have the, the resources to do it.
0: So Alex, you were the executive director for Lennox Health Greenwich Village for a long time. Now you're moving into Brooklyn. What is your goal in Brooklyn? What are you hoping to accomplish in Brooklyn?
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, I think the goal is what it would be in any hospital, right? Um, see if we can provide better services. See how we can help the hospitals, the staff. Um, you know, Brooklyn has underserved areas for sure, and uh, we've we've gone into those areas. We're helping those hospitals wherever we can um, during uh, crises like the pandemic. Uh, like I said, we were in there load balancing, trying to provide staff, giving them whatever assistance that we possibly could um, on a larger scale to really look at their. Their operations. Uh, see if we can add anything to help them with uh, throughput and excess days and length of stays that will lighten the burden um, on on the staff that's already there.
1: You know, it, it's interesting, right? And I know we're having a lot of conversation around uh, COVID. And how it's kind of accelerated uh, this whole idea of healthcare deserts, and at least bringing a lot of it to the forefront, which I think is absolutely fantastic. You know, a lot of where my mind goes today is, you know, at some point in time, we're going to be classifying COVID as an endemic. Right. We're going to have to take these lessons learned and everything that we've done, and we're going to have to figure out how do we do it better, right? How do we understand what we've learned now, take that level of innovation like the telehealth medicine, like the telepharmacy, and really start to institute that in a really organized and succinct fashion to truly elevate and raise help across uh, our communities as, as well as the country. Uh, and, and just some of the things that we're looking at today, and we're trying to think a little bit outside the box is... Do we have vivo health centers, right? So vivo health is our, you know, retail and specialty pharmacies that we have today. What would it look like if we had a vivo health center that maybe had lab testing in there as well as telehealth services? Right? You have the pharmacist there kind of helping navigate. Uh, you know, the community and talk to them and educate them. They can go ahead and they can get their lab services. And then from there, it would help with the telehealth piece as far as the providers being able to diagnose patients. You can look at their blood pressure, you can look at their cholesterol, their diabetes, all of these things, and you have it now in one spot. Having designated locations that have internet and even maybe a higher level diagnostics or better cameras or something else to help those providers really may help raise health and in a very meaningful and important manner. Then what you do on the pharmacy side is that you have a formulary that keeps in mind that not everybody has insurance, right? So you can have the low cost generics and all of those things, and you can have those, those telehealth docs being more geared towards that and more conscious from a financial perspective for that patient. And then you partner with the manufacturers and you make sure you have all those copay assistance programs and everything else. You guys have all seen those commercials, right? Pay no more than five dollars for your medication on on TV, right? Those are those are programs, and they are real. Uh, and at Vivo Health, we spend a lot of time and energy to ensure that we access all of those programs as we understand financial toxicity and, and and the financial burden on receiving these medications. And then you put people into these centers that are from those communities that are really those trusted messengers that that can be there speak the language, understand the culture, and truly resonate with them on, you know, how to change their lives to more healthier behaviors with little steps and and little things like that. And I really think it's those grassroots kind of approaches of going in those communities and putting those type of assets. You know, I I feel that a few well-placed resources can go a long way in boosting both access and understanding. I also think that pharmacists can provide an important function in conjunction with these telehealth services and can truly transform medical deserts into a more healthier place to live. And, and this is the way we have to start to think globally as there really are no barriers to, dis, you know, to, to poor health as we've seen with COVID and, and everything else. Because you know once there's something in one community based on how, how global we are, it's going to be across everything. So we really have to be mindful from a global and a local perspective on how to raise health, make things better, focus on preventative care and supporting people earlier on their journey so they don't have those negative health care outcomes.
2: Yeah, one thing I love about Vivo Health is the fact that um, they send the medications through the mail, right? Must have been enormous during COVID where people didn't want to go into a pharmacy to actually receive it at home on a regular interval. Um, We were talking prior to me leaving uh, Lenox Health Greenwich Village to have a Vivo Pharmacy in the building itself, right? Patient facing, and I I know you're still going to do that. That's extraordinary. Uh, Within Greenwich Village, not only did the hospital close, but in recent times, a lot of the pharmacies around there closed and people don't know where to get their medications. So now you're really, you're developing a a true medical hub for that that neighborhood.
0: Will telehealth and new technologies help
1: solve the, the problem of healthcare deserts? I think it's part of the solution, right? Uh, But it's really important also to assess that community. So, you know, before, when I used to think of a healthcare desert, as mentioned earlier, it's how many physical assets are within a square mile or per person that's there. Now it's, you know, how much medical services can somebody access? And now telehealth comes into that equation. But once again, if they have the inability to access it because they don't have the internet or they don't have, the computers and things to do it, then, then once again, that that's an issue that needs to be uh, addressed and, and solved for. There will be some brick and mortar and some other things that still need to be built in in specific areas as well. But I think this will bring us further along in in, in the journey of trying to um, you know solve for, for these disparities. Yeah,
2: I, I I think to get there, there needs to be payment reform. Um, you know, I, I talked a lot about Medicare and Medicaid, and I I don't think Anybody can look and say, you know what, Medicaid hasn't raised its rates since 2008 and we're going to be just fine because every year everything goes up, right? We give raises to employees, gas, electric, CAT scans, MRIs, everything costs more every year. So I I think there needs to be payment reform um, and an understanding on where that money needs to go, right? Uh, The ambulatory world is growing, uh, trying to keep patients out of hospitals healthy and well. Is, is very, very important. Mental health is very important and uh, severely underfunded. So uh, uh, I think there's a good opportunity for us at this moment to look at everything and uh, again, create, create a better tomorrow in healthcare um, with, a, with a big focus on all of this.
0: That's awesome. What would your advice be to people who are listening and people who may be living in a, a healthcare desert or a pharmacy desert? What would be your advice to them? How do they advocate for themselves to make sure that they and their families are getting the medications they need and getting the healthcare that they need?
1: You know, I think the most important thing, as we mentioned earlier, is talk to your community leaders. Let them know what services that you're looking for. First of all, you may be able to get an education on where those services live and how to access them. And if they, those services don't exist, the more people that advocate to their local community members on what they need and the bigger that that, that opportunity becomes, then at that point, uh, you know, they'll be able to gather additional resources and bring in, you know, organizations like Northwell and other ones that can come in and help solution for it. Absolutely. And and to add on that, your political
2: leaders in your neighborhood. So, um... For us, when we were downtown, that was crucial. They they helped us with so much. They came to our ribbon cuttings. Uh, we we developed a great relationship with everybody down there, and it was really beneficial. Dr. Onisa Steffis and Alex Hellinger, thank you
0: so much for joining us here on 20-Minute Health Talk. And for you, the listener, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Rob Hoyle. Have a great day and stay safe. Thank you, Rob. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. Subscribe to 20-Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.